kid, I remember magazines that sometimes had two pictures next to them and you had to look and see what the differences were and see if you could figure out, hey, this is different than that and you would circle it. Or sometimes there were different magazines that had pictures that just said, what's wrong with this picture? Okay, and so you'd have to look and try and figure it out and circle those things. I found out that sometimes those are even still used in education um, where someone will show a picture to a child and they'll look at it. And so it helps them, one, to identify things that don't look uh, like that's right as far as in place, but then even being able to enunciate that to somebody. And so since you all are just big kids, I'm going to show you some pictures here and you can try to decipher what is wrong with the picture, okay? And so we're going to take a look at this. Here is the first picture for the morning up on the screen is what is wrong with this picture? See if you can figure it out. You can tell someone next to you if you figure it out. If not, just look like you know what the answer is. And everyone will think that. Looking, looking. Okay. The answer is this. That she has roller skates or roller blades on instead of ice skates. Okay. If you look closely, there's not an ice skate just all the way across. All right. Let's look at a second one. Now that you know how the game is played. Here we go. What is wrong with this picture? So maybe a little bit trickier. Some of you are like, the first one was tricky enough. Try to figure that out. All right. See the answer? It is where the rope is meeting the wood. If you just put it on the front, there's a good chance you'd be falling off as you swing, okay? Or swung, swimmed, whatever you want to call it, okay? So here we go. Next picture. What is wrong with this one? I will tell you, I saw some people say the space bar is too big. That's not the answer, okay? So that is not what is wrong with this. <laughs> Looking at things. All right, some of you are feeling confident. Some of you don't know yet. The answer is this, that there are only 30 days of June. So June 31st does not exist. Let's give you one more. Here's the fourth picture. What is wrong with this picture. <clears throat> All right, time for the answer. It has to do with the reflection and how the arms are, if you're looking at a mirror and what the reflection would be, okay? And so some of you absolutely love those. Some of you are like, yep, I'm not going back to kindergarten. Don't want to do those things again, okay? But this idea of what's wrong with the picture, I show you those because if someone were to take just a snapshot, a picture of what we are talking about today, there would be a lot of people during uh, Jesus's time that would look at that picture and say, man, there's a lot of things wrong with this. Like there are things going on that should not be, okay? If you're just to look, this isn't right. And so we're going to talk about those details here in just a little bit. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 4, or you can go to um, the Bible app, and it's got all our verses all in there already. But John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Last week in this series that we're talking about with, like encounters with Jesus, we saw this man named Nicodemus come and talk to Jesus. Right after that, if you were to keep reading in the text, you'd see that Jesus goes out and he begins uh, baptizing people. Although if you read further into uh, information, it's more his disciples are alongside of him baptizing people. Well, then there are some individuals who go and talk to John the Baptist and they're like, hey, do you realize all these people are going to Jesus and being baptized over there? And John the Baptist testifies saying, well, I'm not the Messiah. My role is to come before 
before him to prepare the way. And so he actually kind of testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And then right after that, we hear that Jesus understands that the Pharisees are hearing that a lot of people are starting to listen to Jesus and be baptized him by him. And so Jesus decides it's now time to go to Galilee. Like right now I'm in Jerusalem, but it is time to go to Galilee and he's going to be there for a few months doing ministry. Okay. So that's what's going on from what we just read last week to the point that we're at today. And so we're in John chapter four. Let's read verses four through six as we continue just uh, to see what happens. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so let me give you some context so that you kind of understand more than just, hey, here's what's going on. So it talks about going... um, to uh, Galilee, but going through Samaria. If you were to go through Samaria, that's about a 70-mile trip, all right? So if you travel 20 to 25 miles a day, that's approximately two to four days for this trip from Jerusalem to Galilee. However, most Jewish people would not take the straight route. They did not want to go through Samaria. So they would choose to go around. It would add an extra two to three days on their journey. But they hated Samaritans so much that they would rather go around than just go through Samaria and possibly, you know, interact with them. Now, why did they hate them so much? Here's the reason. Because a long time ago in the Old Testament, when Assyria comes in and they take some of the Jewish people into captivity, they then leave some of their people to work the land and be able to kind of govern that area and such. Well, over the years, some of the Jewish people who were left there began to marry some of the people who had been left by the Assyrians. And so now the Jewish people look at them and say, well, you began to intermarry with one another. And so you're not really fully Jewish anymore. You're just a half Jew. And so they began to very much look down upon one another. And there was just a lot of animosity between them. So, so much so that the Jewish people would rather go around instead of um, risking ceremonial defilement or the possibility of some sort of violence due to this racial tension that had been building up. And there's even some religious stuff that we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But I want you to understand kind of just how much they really disliked each other. Like some of you cheer for a team that is involved in a rivalry somewhere. And so some of you maybe are like KU fans and some of you are K-State fans. All right. And so other times you look upon uh, that opposing college, that opposing team, and maybe you very much dislike them. Maybe you even use the word hate. Maybe you're like, oh, like you just, when a game is coming up, your blood begins to boil, you know, and you really, really want to beat that other team. But the thing is, even in some of those moments... (coughs) there's still a respect that you have for the other team. Like maybe you're like the way that they play or the coach that they have, or you wouldn't want to tell anyone, but like you secretly wish you could be like them in certain ways, like all this kind of stuff. There is this respect involved. Can I tell you between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, there was no respect whatsoever. There was no, I wish I could be like you a little bit. They very much hated one another. And so that's what's going on here in our text. And the Samaritans, like, they kind of had it hard because the Jewish people looked down upon them. Other Gentile people around them looked down on them because they were married to the Jewish people. And so they were kind of in a hard spot. But if you read our text, at the very beginning, it said (coughs) that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Like, the Spirit of God was leading him. He knew that there was a purpose. He knew that there was some sort of encounter. And so they're not going around. They're going through. And so they come to this town called Sychar. 
Now, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you won't see Sychar anywhere, but you will see Shechem. And most people will tell you that Shechem must have changed their name at some point because you see some things that lead up to this. In fact, Abraham. So some of you guys remember Father Abraham. Long time ago, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you. You're going to become the father of many nations. And so I want you to move. And so Abraham gets up following what God tells him to do. And at one point, while he is moving, he nears this place called Shechem. And God says, look around. And this will all be given to your, um, to your uh, kids someday. And so at that point, you know, he builds an altar and then he continues on his journey. Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who then also has twins named Jacob and Esau. Like as you read through the story of Jacob and Esau, there's a lot of tension that happens there. And at one point, Jacob, quote, steals the blessing uh, from Esau and Esau's ready to kill him. And so Jacob has to run away and years they spend apart. But finally, there's a time that Jacob is ready to try to see if Esau will accept him back. And he's still scared. So he sends all sorts of gifts to him before this meeting happens again. And so then once Esau and Jacob meet up, then Jacob says, yep, you can continue on. And then we read, in our text that Jacob, um, he goes and camps within the site of a city, and that city is called Shechem. And he, he buys a plot of ground, and he sets up an altar there called El Elohi Israel. That's what he calls it, which means the God of Israel. And at some point, there's a well that is built there. In fact, you could still go over today and see that well. It is 75 feet deep, and it is a quarter of a mile right outside the city of Sychar. And so people would have to travel about 10 minutes to go out there. And as we see Jesus making this journey from Jerusalem to Sychar, it's about 30 miles. So he has probably traveled one full day. And now because we know that it's noon, he's probably traveled about a half day. And he's at this well and it says because he's tired, he sits down. And that's where we're at. Okay, so let's continue to read our text. Verses 7 through 9 of what John records for us. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, so here we go. We have the disciples being gone, and this woman approaches, and Jesus asks for a drink. Here's where if we're showing the picture of what's wrong with this picture, people would start to point and go, this is not what's supposed to happen. But Jesus breaks down two barriers, two barriers. The first is the idea of the Samaritans to the Jews. Like he says, you know what? I get that I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan, but we're going to have this conversation. He breaks down that barrier. The other barrier is the idea of male to female. Because oftentimes in this time, males would not talk with females in public. In fact, sometimes they didn't even talk to their spouses while they were in public. And so here's Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman, and she points out, um, you're actually talking to me. You're asking me for a drink. I don't understand. In fact, John even said the idea, you know what? The Jews do not associate with, <coughs> with Samaritans. Your Bible may say they have no dealings with. Well, if you were to read the Greek, it says the idea that they do not use together with. So she even knows the idea of the ceremonial things that they're supposed to do. And if you drink out of this container after me or after the Samaritans, doesn't that make you unclean? And so here she is bringing all this up, but this Jewish man, Jesus, is asking her for a drink. And so let's see what Jesus says in verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Well, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay, so back at the beginning, Jesus says, if you know who it was and the gift that I have, okay, so who I am, the Messiah, she doesn't know that yet, and this gift, this idea of real life, this eternal life, then I, you would be asking me for it. But he then talks about this idea of living water, but she doesn't get it. But she takes it differently than maybe you and I would go, as if we're thinking about living water. The reason is because that was a term they used. Living water would refer to water that's maybe in a stream or a spring, not just water in a well or a cistern. And so that's what she thinks Jesus is talking about. And so when people would have living water, it was a big deal because it was a source of life for agrarian peasants, or it meant clean drinking water and fertile gardens. It reduced the amount of labor you had to put in or increased your net worth. It often provided refreshment or rest or pleasure or power. And so you can understand when Jesus says, hey, I have living water, She's like, ooh. But she goes, where do you get this water? Like, you aren't from here. Are you greater than our father Jacob who built this? Like, where do you get this water? She's trying to put it all together. And Jesus says, well, if you drink of my water, you won't be thirsty again. In fact, it will end up being this spring that wells up in you for eternal life. What's interesting is if G what Jesus says in his Greek words, he says this idea of whoever continues to drink this water, like you drink it again and again and again, you'll be thirsty. But whoever drinks my water, that means one time drinking, whoever drinks my water will never thirst again. Now, he actually explains some of this later in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It's another sermon that he speaks, and he's talking about this living water. And in that section, he talks about that this living water that I speak of refers to the Spirit. But at this point, he doesn't like just give her all the details yet. So she doesn't put everything together, but she hears of this living water that he talks about, and she says, I want it. Like, can you imagine the 10-minute journey every single day, walking from town to the well, spending the time getting the water, and then having to carry those large containers of water back into town every single day? How wearisome that would be. And so she hears this, and she's like, I want this water. And so this is what Jesus says in the conversation that happens, verses 16 through 20. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now live with um, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Well, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Okay. So here, like when we read this text, we understand why she's out there at noon. Like most of the other women would have come in the morning when it was cool or later in the afternoon slash evening when it was cool. But because now she has had five husbands and the guy she's living with right now is not her husband, I'm sure she would have been shunned by so many people. And so instead of just having all the glances at her and all those kind of things, she chooses to come at a different time. 
And so Jesus says, I, I know your past. He says, I know that you've had the five husbands and the one that you're not living with right now is not married to you. And there's an author called N.T. Wright. He wants us to be able to connect with her just a little bit. And this is uh, his words. He says, the woman has had a life composed of one emotional upheaval after another. With enough husbands coming and going to keep all the gossips in the village chattering for weeks, we assume that her various marriages ended in divorce, whether legal or informal, and not with the death of the men in question. But we don't know whether she was equally sinned against as she was sinning. We don't know what emotional traumas in her background may have made it harder for her to form lasting bonds, though it seems as though the traumas she was at least partly responsible for will have made it harder and harder for her each and every time. But she knew that her life was in a mess. And now she knew that Jesus knew. So here she is just coming for water. She already feels like an outcast. And this person who is not from Samaria knows her past. What's interesting is her response, it goes down. Like earlier when she began talking with Jesus in verse 9, she responded with 11 Greek words. In verse 15, she responds with 13 Greek words. In verses 12 and 13, she's pretty talkative, and she's got 42 Greek words that she responds to. And here, when Jesus says, go and get your husband, she responds in three Greek words. Not, I have a husband. And that's all she says. And what Jesus does is he grabs her attention, but then he draws her to himself. Man, she understands that somehow he's a prophet. I mean, how else would you know all about her life unless you lived in this town? And again, her conclusion is not wrong, just like Nicodemus, but it wasn't complete. And so what does she do? She redirects the conversation. I mean, she changes the subject. Instead of talking about my life, let's talk about this theological debate. And maybe she's just like, let's take this off of me. and may take the focus off of me. It's a strong possibility. But one of the people that I read this week said this, if you met a prophet who could tell you your secrets of your life, in that moment, what would you ask? And so for her, the most controversial issue between the Jews and the Samaritans was this idea of where do we worship? And so she takes the moment to bring this up. Now, what do I mean by this? The Jewish people, they had built a temple in Jerusalem, and that's where they worshiped God, but the Samaritans weren't allowed there. And so because of that, they built this temple over on Mount Gerizim, and this is where they worshiped. However, a couple hundred years before this moment, the Jewish people came in and they tore down the temple, and that was a hot button. And so the Samaritans, I can imagine, she's even talking with Jesus here. She probably could have looked up and even seen the rubble still there. And so... The Samaritans had reasons of why we worship where we do, because back in Deuteronomy, you see Moses saying, on Mount Gerizim, you will speak the blessings to the people, and Mount Ebal, which is right next to it, that's where you will speak the curses. Later on, when Joshua and the people go into the promised land and conquer Jericho and Ai, right after that, they renew their covenant with God on Mount Gerizim. And so here are the Samaritan people. They're like, so this is why we're worshiping where we do. And I understand you say this is where we must worship. So if this is the debate and you are a prophet, then prove it. Where is it that we should worship? And so then we get Jesus's answer in verses 21 through 26. And so he says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, well, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You know, it's not going to be that much longer and people are going to understand that worshiping is not just about a place. In fact, two years, maybe closer to three, Jesus is going to die on a cross and at that moment, the veil that is in the temple is going to be torn. And people are going to understand that worshiping is not about a place, but it's about a person. In fact, it's a relationship with that person. And God, he wants to connect with us in spirit and daily living. He wants this deep, intimate connection with us that being with Jesus really does change everything. And again, as she's listening to all this, she says, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain everything. That word Messiah, it means anointed one, the Savior. When he comes, I know he's going to explain it all. And Jesus at that moment, he says, I am he. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched the television show Undercover Boss. And what happens is a boss will go and work multiple places within their company with people. And then at some point, like at the end, then uh, those uh, employees come and they see the, the boss that when he's all not all dressed up and you can see some of their reactions when they're like, <gasps> like I was with him the whole time. Like I imagine this kind of being the ultimate undercover boss, like reveal that, can you imagine when the Messiah is here? I am he. And her eyes just like get really big or her jaw drops open or whatever. But Jesus and he is very plain about who he is. In fact, he will not be this direct for two more years. And the reason is because while he's in Samaria, they're not going to try to make him some political Messiah like the Jews would be. So he says, I am the Messiah. Well, how does that affect her? Well, in our text, we see that the disciples, they come back from town. They've got food in this moment. And so then here's what happens in verses 28 through 30. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Okay, so she quickly, I mean, she leaves her water there. She goes back into the town to share with other people that which has happened to her. She is now experiencing joy. She was seen by someone. She was truly cared for by someone. And she wants people to know all about him. In fact, it's been interesting. As she's been with Jesus, her words change. He was a Jew. Then he became sir slash Lord. Then he became, I see that you're a prophet. And now is this the Christ, the Messiah? She's getting and understanding who he is. And so I imagine there are some people in the, in the city that are hearing this idea of, ooh, we get to hear all about her. I mean, come, listen. She told me everything I did. We want the juicy details. So I'm sure there's some people that are like, I'm going to come and listen just for that. But then there's other people. There are other people who are curious. There are other people who believe because of her words. There are people who are hopeful that the Messiah might be here. And so they come. They come to listen to Jesus. And so the last section that we're reading is verses 39 through 42. And it says this, that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard 
for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so because of what she said, they believe, and then they come out and they hear the words from him themselves and they become believers. And I don't know what picture you have in your mind when you think about this woman at the well. Maybe you think about the past. Maybe you think about what she's done. But can I tell you that she's one of the greatest evangelists we have written about in Scripture. That she goes and tells people and like others come to know Jesus because of her words. You know what, when I think about this encounter with the woman at the well that Jesus had, and I think about the encounter that we studied last week where Jesus met with Nicodemus, and I realize that they are pretty much complete opposites. Like in one instance, you have someone who's an insider versus someone who's an outsider. You have someone who is prestigious versus someone who's an outcast. You have someone who has clout amongst the people versus someone who has scars. You have someone who is prized and praised versus someone who is pawned and scandalized. You have a Jewish man versus a Samaritan woman. You have someone who comes at night versus someone who meets Jesus in the middle of the day. You have someone who came to Jesus and someone who Jesus went specifically to meet her. And yet both of them had expectations about the Messiah who would come. And what I want you to hear is that Jesus loved both of them. (laughs) Jesus loved both of them immensely. And so even reading this text, I want to tell you a couple application points about, okay, we're talking about being with Jesus and we see this encounter that she has. What does that still mean for us? And can I point out a couple things? The first thing would be this, that being with Jesus helps you to see who you are. When you're with Jesus, it helps you to see who you are. And in this instance, I'm not talking about the fact that he is holy and almighty and it draws me to my knees. Like there is aspects of that in scripture that I am reverent before him. But what I'm talking about in this text is the fact that when I understand that I am with Jesus, I'm not defined by my past or by what so many other people define me as. When I'm with Jesus, I understand who I was created to be. I understand that I am a child of God. I understand my identity. I understand that I have a purpose. Even if I don't understand it all, like I understand that I am important simply by being with Jesus. In fact, you see this woman as soon as she goes back into town. I'm I'm sure she didn't just still love her past, but that's not what's stopping her. She is now telling everyone, this is the man that I came in contact with because she's not defined by her past anymore. In fact, she understands in some sense that the Messiah spent time talking with her. Like she was worth being saved. And can I tell you this? That even if you're in a spot where there are people who continually put you down for whatever reason, and maybe you even in your own mind think, well, I kind of deserve some of this. Like whatever spot that you might be in, in words, man, they come and they bring you down. Can I tell you that the God of the universe cares? And as I see that he's the one who created you, his words are the ones that really matter. And so as you spend time with him, you understand who you are and how important you are to him. And I also want to point out this, that God is not a God who punishes. 
Like in scripture, you see there are times of discipline or there are times that consequences happen, but so many times God is like giving you warning after warning after warning because he wants his kids to be able to experience the blessings. But sometimes there are times in life that something's going on and we're like, I feel like God's punishing me. Like I did whatever it was and I just feel like this is a consequence that God is purposely punishing me for this. Man, when I look at scripture, that is not the kind of God that we serve. He's not out to punish in any way. In fact, even in this scripture, when John writes it, the name of the lady is never mentioned. And so we see that even there, she's being protected while the sin is still being exposed. I want you to know that God loves us. And if that's not personal enough for you, I want you to know that God, man, he loves you. And the more that you're with him, the more that you understand who you are. There's a second thing I would tell you, that being with Jesus leads us to telling other people. Like when we experience the joy of being with him or even the forgiveness of that thing that just weighed us down or we feel the completeness or the purpose or the hope that once we were in this dark valley that God has helped us out of, we want to help others experience those things as well. So we naturally want to tell other people. And I'm not saying you have to be preachy about it, but in your conversations, does God ever come up? Do the things that Jesus has done in your life ever come up? Because being with Jesus, it will naturally come out. I mean, even if you don't know everything, this woman didn't know everything, but she simply said, come, I need you to see the man who told me everything. And that was her message. And people chose to believe because of that. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If church is simply something you do or simply something you watch online, if that's the entire purpose of it, you probably won't be very motivated to tell other people about Jesus. However, If you choose to be with Jesus every single day, that looks a lot different than simply sitting in a service once a week. When we are with Jesus, it will cause us to tell other people about him. Here's the third thing I would tell you, that being with Jesus breaks down barriers. It breaks down barriers. The more you're with Jesus, the more you're going to see people the way he does, and that they're important to him. And so barriers are going to fall down. You're going to begin to love people. Now, it may take some intentionality. God, help my heart to see people the way that you see them. But the more that you're with Jesus, that will happen. And I get there's still times for wisdom. God, help me. Should I go in this spot? Should I go talk to this person? Should I have multiple people with me? All those kind of things. There's a spot for wisdom, but there is never a spot for prejudice. God wants us to see other people as important. And so may we never be a church that builds up barriers between them and Jesus. Now, we'll also be a church that always speaks truth and always shows love to people. But every time in scripture you see when people's hearts change, it's because of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to show them who he is and let them see him and his truth and let God be the one that changes people. Because the truth is, that's what happened with each one of us. That God's the one that changed us. So the more that you are around Jesus, the barriers will fall. Here's the last thing I would tell you. I want you to know that Jesus is with you even when you don't realize it. He's with you even when you don't realize it. 
I mean, here's this lady, she's talking with Jesus and doesn't even realize that he's the Messiah, and yet he's there. This was not an accident. He knew he was supposed to be here to have this conversation with her. He came to her, and in the same way, Jesus continually calls you and I to him. He comes to us. We see going as the shepherd to go get the sheep and looking for the coin, and so it's been said, you know, if there's a hundred steps between God and me, he's taking 99. I simply have to take the one. He says, I want you I want you to be part of my family. And so the question is, will you choose to accept that? Will you choose to say that I believe that you are the Messiah, just like these Samaritans? Will you say, I want that living water. I want the spirit of God in me. It's a choice we all make. But I will tell you, once you make that choice, the truth is that Jesus never leaves you. And I kind of even have the picture of maybe that little boy sitting out uh, on a, a picnic blanket or maybe even inside in the living room playing with toys. And the whole entire time, his mom or his dad is right behind him. But so many times he doesn't know it. I mean, he's not focused on that. He's focused only on the toys that are in front of him. But the entire time, one of his parents is there. And in the same way as we are daily living and doing the tasks that are in front of us, Jesus is still there even when we don't recognize it. And man, that is something that is comforting. The fact that even when I don't feel it, you're working. And even when I don't see it, you're working. So this woman at the well, like the truth for us is still this idea that God loves you and he is with you. And he wants you to love others and he wants you to share that with him. And can I tell you, if you live that way, if you just simply live with him, living this way, it will bring a genuine fulfillment that nothing else brings. And can I tell you what a great joy it is when someone looks at you and says, you know what, there are things about your life that brought me to the church or brought me to Jesus, but now I don't simply believe because of you, but I believe because of the things that he's done in my life. Let's make that the kind of lifestyle we want to live, simply being with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. I am thankful that Jesus came to this earth, that we get to see your heart uh, with flesh on. And God, I'm thankful that there is no barrier that we as humans put up that can keep us from you. Father, I am also thankful that you are the one that gives us a new heart, God, that changes our desires, and, and Father, that we get to find our purpose in you. So God, even this week, there's a lot of things I could pray for. I could pray over those who are still trying to figure out what this means to follow you, or they know it. God, they need that little prompting, or they need that desire, that that, uh, maybe courage to take that step. God, may they experience new life. Father, help us as we're living this week to show the love that you have given to us, to other people. God, may we do it in community and encourage one another, and we're not walking this life alone. But in all these ways, God, may people see you through us. I am thankful that you choose to use us to share your message with others. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.